of Frederick Douglass was published in 2017. About it, Annette Gordon-Reed wrote, In this well-researched and richly textured book, Leithout gives us fascinating new views into the life and times of one of our most famous and revered figures, Frederick Douglass. As he freely acknowledged, women helped make Douglass the man he became. So, we too are in debt to the women whose stories come so vividly alive in these pages. Lee was especially generous with her time, suffering through an embarrassing technology fail on my part that necessitated redoing 30 minutes of this interview. The first question is, what inspired you to, to write the book? Uh, or in our modern vernacular, what's your origin story with this? Well, um, honestly, I had not studied Frederick Douglass. In fact, I have studied the people who Frederick Douglass hated. Um, my dissertation was on a woman who um, was like a female fire eater. And um, but while I was teaching at the time in graduate school and I assigned Frederick Douglass's narrative and uh, I honestly, I'm pretty sure I read it sometime before then. I probably should have. But like most things you're assigned to read in high school, it kind of gets deleted from the hard drive and not that I knew what a hard drive was then. And um, so here I am reading it and it, it was so powerful. It was such this incredible experience of hearing this man speak about or write about, but it felt like he was speaking to me across you know, a century and a half about his humanity and his anger and his frustration and his will to be heard as an intelligent living human. It was an incredibly profound reading experience that I, I still, I can still feel today. And even when I go back and read it while I was writing and researching, it just, you can still feel it. And the other two of his, um, his autobiographies have more detail, but they have more of a rolling and, and relaxed voice to it. The narrative was, more the immediacy of being fresh out of the condition and the immediacy of of the anger and the frustration and the the voice speaking to you and so that was that was just incredible but i never thought i would you know, do anything more with frederick douglas or would have anything to say for frederick douglas um i graduated with my phd didn't know what i was going to do next because i was a little burned on academia. And um, then this job to work at the Frederick Douglass papers came up. And that was a job I really wanted. And so I got it by some fluke. And um, we were publishing the first volume of his correspondence, which was really the first 10 years of his public life. And the main thing we did with that was annotate, which is explain kind of the context of each letter. And so we're talking about, you know, 18, roughly 45 to 1855-ish. I think it was 53. And um, so in that period of time, what you're seeing is him becoming Frederick Douglass. He's going from being Fred Bailey, or really he's even past being Fred Bailey. He's he's at this stage where he's growing from a local phenomena to an international one. And you're seeing him go through the difficulties of establishing his own voice, the difficulties of establishing his newspaper, the difficulties of being away from home for a couple of years when he's in England and um, not being able to trust a lot of people. And the people he relied on the most were the women around him. And that's where I really noticed that this was absent from his biographies, that the people who were keeping the anti-slavery movement going were the women. The women, um, of course, you're always interested. I, you know, I came out of women's history, so I'm interested in the women anyway. But that this story was absent from 
his. And especially when I went to the Boston Public Library and looked in their anti-slavery papers to look at, you know, we were publishing his correspondence. So that's the correspondence to and from him. This is uh, the correspondence around him. And so what people were saying, and I got a real strong sense of, of especially the story having to do with Julia Griffith and him establishing the newspaper and just how important the money, fundraising, the newspaper, and the role the women who helped him do that played. And I thought, okay, there's, there's a story here that about these women and about these women with him that has to be told. Um, took a couple of years because I took a couple of roads not traveled, discovered why they're not traveled, went back. <laughs> um, and I was teaching at a community college, which you don't have to do any publication at a community college. But I thought, I, it, it just kept coming back to me. I want to I want to do this. I want to do this. So I thought at first it would just be a series of um, chapters on each woman. But one of my friends, um, Babu, who is one of the smartest people you ever want to know. Um, he was one of my one of my friends in grad school. Um, and to give you an idea of how smart he was, he um, or is, he went on Jeopardy. He won a Corvette and $75,000 on Jeopardy in the 90s. Sold the Corvette to pay for the taxes on the $75,000. <laughs> but uh, he told me, no, nobody's not interested in that book. You have to focus on Douglas because that's what people are interested in. And that's going to be the, tr the, the strain. That's going to be the spine that's going to hold it together. And so that's, that's what I kept thinking about. And, and so I just dove in. Did you did you feel it was um, daunting uh, or uh, a unique opportunity to write something that clearly nobody else was doing, even though even though it was about a subject that a lot of ink has been spilled on? Um, I I well okay first since I didn't think you know I just was doing it I when I started it out and didn't have a contract or any idea of a contract, I just thought, what the heck, you know, I what's, you know, sometimes you, sometimes that kind of ignorance of what you're getting yourself into is what allows you to get yourself into it. And I thought I've done a book, I've done two books before I can do this. And, um, so I, uh, so I just started, I honestly thought what I was going to be doing is looking at just synthesizing what other people said and just kind of like pulling the stories out of what the other people said about the women and piecing them together in a new narrative. And as I kept going, I realized um, I was writing something entirely new that, that I had to do so much more research, so much more primary research so much more rethinking about it and reconceptualizing it. And, um, and I kept going, I found a whole new collection of papers I hadn't heard of before, which was the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society papers, which they had all of these um, accounts that showed entry after entry about money given to, it was usually Rosetta Douglas or Lewis Douglas that it was pretty clear that like they came from the North Star office to the whoever the treasurer was and got the money to pay for somebody who was fleeing from the fugitive slave law going to Canada to pay for clothing, for tickets on the railroad, for room and board, which meant that was going to Anna, for, um, for a funeral in one case. Um, so paying for all of the things that helped people get to safety um, so that gave it a, this whole other level, other depth. And then I found in that letters about what that society was doing during reconstruction to help free people. When I was researching his, um, second wife, nobody was curious about her except to say she was white and they had her doing all sorts of stuff. They had her teaching at Hampton, um, college before it was even established. <laughs> 
And um, I found her working for the American Missionary Association, which was one of the many predecessors to the Freedmen's, private predecessors to the Freedmen's Bureau. She was one of the first white teachers in Norfolk, Virginia, teaching among the freed people. And when I discovered that, I was like, well, obviously that's why they got along. It was an adventure in pulling together new information and telling stories about these women that gave them depth that had never been given to them and giving him depth. So this story around him, you know, I just, that unto itself became the story. And, um, and most people kept telling me, you know, when I would say I was working on women in Frederick Douglass, they thought it was all going to be the women's rights story. That was the least interesting part of the whole thing. In fact, that was the last thing I wrote because it was so boring and not a lot of there there. The rest had to do with the way these relationships amongst between him and all of these women and how they functioned both in what they did in abolition to support his career but um, what the women got out of these and also how just as relationships, as friendships, as partnerships, as marriages, they all worked against slavery and against racism. And that was, that became the story. Can you talk about um, how, as a historian, um, one who initially thought that she was going to be synthesizing as opposed to taking the next step. Um, what kind of challenges do you face, particularly uh, with the, with, uh, I'm thinking specifically of black women, but the women in general, if, if there aren't, you know, if you don't actually have their own writing in trying to figure out the, you know, what their larger story is. Yeah. And in, in that being a white woman myself, that's those, they are the ones I have to be the most careful of. Um, which, um, and I'm dealing a lot with that writing about Sally Hemings, because who, in fact, I was having a crisis about that today, but that's another story. Like, that gets into who, who has a right to tell whose story. Um, that's a philosophical level, but also when you're approaching the material, are you taking short, are you making shortcuts, assuming you know something because you have the same identity as that person? Like, do I assume, you know, Having the same identity means you might have certain insights, like um, being a woman. I think I had certain insights into some of the questions, like, for instance, with Adelia Azing, not one single man asked what kind of birth control, if they're having all of this, you know, these wild inter, you know, sexual affairs, then what kind of birth control is going on there? They were just like, ooh, dude. I'm like, well, okay. Things result from that, which is part of the lack of evidence that that existed. But, um, but you know, we'll get to that. In a yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> so there's, um, you can that can provide you insight, but it also can be a danger that you make shortcuts and assuming that you know. And, uh, um, but also if you don't share an identity with the person you're writing about, you have to be very careful that you're not imposing, say, stereotypes on a person. And um, so I try to be very careful when I'm writing about Black women that I'm not imposing stereotypes um, because those things can come up so unconsciously. And then I try to find as much evidence as I can. And sometimes it's, it's you don't have anything. Um, for Douglas's mother, I had I mean, I was lucky that I had Dixon Preston went and went through all of these records and compiled young Frederick Douglass. And then I went and I looked at those. That became a matter of looking at them differently um, because he was just trying to put Douglass at the center of the story. And so I needed to put Douglass to the side of the story. Like Douglass is a minor character in this story since I'm looking at the women. And then look at, say, how similar this was to other women like them 
are there inner, any similar stories to say older grandmother women in slave communities? How do other um, masters manage women that they've enslaved? The way Douglas Say, for instance, describes how he was taken from his mother at a certain age and then taken, then his grandmother had to bring him to the big house and leave him there and abandon him there at a certain age. And then at another age, he was sent to go to Baltimore. So this actually tracked with how the records of that master managed all of his slaves. And um, it's, I'm also finding it tracks with, say, with the way Thomas Jefferson managed his slaves. So in these larger, more complex plantations that managed, so that gave me an idea. And then I could look at other women who might be like, Douglas's mother, who gave birth to many children at very steady intervals, like pretty, like as soon as she could, she got pregnant with another one. So she's having birth with, so what does that mean for her? And then create questions where I may not know, you know, it's almost like they're a hole in the record, in the history. And so I may not know what's in that hole, but I can get a better idea of the shape of it. And with Anna, Anna herself didn't leave records, but boy, she made, she made sure she was heard. And um, I was able to start with her daughter's reminiscence, um, my mother as I recall her. And that gave me a lot of clues. And then I could try to track her in, um, say, census, city directories, um, anywhere that what con what was life would life be like? What prospects could a free black woman in Baltimore expect? But when it she was a little easier than Douglas's mother and grandmother because she was there by him, so people are commenting on her, and so. I could look at what she did to see what she valued because what she, where she puts her time and her effort indicates what she values. And um, so where she presses herself against the record, where she presses against him or with him, where she, um, where she shows up gave me not her voice, but it did give me a body of impressions that allowed me to create some sense of her and um, some idea of what, what she might have been like and what it might have been like to be married to somebody who probably was a lot of work at home. <laughs> Well, we promised we would we would address <laughs> something that may or may not connect to that. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's been a lot of speculative writing about Frederick Douglass's relationships with women who were not he, who he was not married right. to. And um, how much of that do you think is just on the is speculation based on um, on where there's smoke, there's fire, or even a racist approach? based on the fear of black male sexuality and particularly with white women? I would say it's a second because I, um, I found very little evidence of, of anything. Um, there was, uh, first of all, with Julia Griffith, he had Julia Griffiths was an English woman who lived in, who was, a, he met while he was in England. And then she came over, she had helped him, she had helped raise the money for his freedom. She had helped raise the money for his, um, to start his newspaper. She had probably gave him like the a core of books that kind of began his library. And um, many of the books in his library have his name, her name in them because she took them from hers library and gave them to him. So this is, that's a really important gift to him. A man who loves to read and for whom the written word is so important. And um, so she took, um, she comes over with her sister in uh, 1849 and right on the brink of his newspaper failing. And a lot of people had a lot invested in his newspaper failing. 
because they didn't want his competition, the newspaper competition, and they wanted him back in the field lecturing. And so, um, so he's about to hand over the newspaper to the, you know, let it merge with the National Anti-Slavery Standard when he gets down to New York for their convention week, which they had every like May, um, there would be, would be all the anti-slavery conventions, but it would be all the reform movements like the temperance and so forth would have the conventions in New York City. And he gets down there and he's expecting to meet them and he lets them know what the deal is. And they said, no, we'll help you. And so, and almost immediately there's pushback. Um, there are, uh, he's walking down the street with them and he gets attacked by some roughs for walking with white women. Uh, he's already been criticized for sitting in the state, um, in the state capitol, seeing the legislature. He's sitting in the women's gallery with a woman because he won't be, because he's a black man and they won't let him in the men's gallery. And of course it's segregated by gender. Um, so I believe it was probably Abby, um, Abby, Abigail Mott who invited him and, um, and he was criticized for that. Something like the rooster let loose in the hen house or the fox let loose in the hen house, you know, some kind of suggestive thing. There were woodcuts going around that were supposed to have been fairly pornographic. Uh, as they're going back up the um, Hudson River, there are all sorts of stories about, oh, there was the, the, their, the, their rooms abutted each other and um, the, they had the door between them unlocked so that they could go back and forth. And so you know, it was in the big thing was as she, as Julia Griffiths became more and more effective in consolidating his the his newspaper, um, making sure that she got Garrett Smith on board, getting the donations from England, and kind of establishing him and his paper as independent and financially stable. And it also in doing so, he became intellectually independent. So he could explore a lot of different um abolitionist strategies and tactics and ideologies. So he wasn't wedded to the moral suasion that uh, it, it kind of got, it got rough. And I mean, there's a lot of other pieces in there where he's debating and they get really personal attacks. I always compare it to when you get to the primary season and um, presidential elections and you start like in the Democrat or the Republican party, they're fighting each other so viciously, you start to wonder, uh, you realize who the, the, <laughs> the other side actually is. And um and the circular firing squad. Yes, exactly. And so it's like sometimes you, you know, you be forgiven for getting for the, for thinking, wait a minute, which one of you are the slaveholder? Oh, that's right. None of all of you are against slavery. Wait a minute. And um and so what William Lloyd Garrison decides to do is hit low. He accuses um, Douglas of having an affair with Julia Griffith there in his own house with his wife under the same roof as his children. And so um, there was no evidence for that. That was a means of taking out both Douglas and Julia Griffiths and essentially making Douglas useless. I mean, not just taking him out as competition, taking him out entirely because you're now falling back on the um, oversexed black male stereotype. Um, and then um, nobody really thought anything of Adelia Azing at the time. And it wasn't until the book Love Across Color Lines came out and that made a big splash. I mean, everybody assumes it's correct, which means they kind of project back that he was, of course, having you know an affair with Julia Griffiths. And then um, not just because of that book, but there's just this kind of presumption of um, a post-sexual revolution attitude in the Victorian era. Like, um, you know, that of course he was doing all of these women who were gushing over him. And I found no evidence to suggest that he was doing anything with Adelia Azing. 
And um, in fact, I went so far as to get her letters that were supposed to have the evidence from Poland, where they're in a repository. And I had the ones that were almost, um, that seemed to be, they were, they were being cited as the smoking guns. I got those translated and that was not cheap because it's not just translating them from German. There was a particular kind of script they had in those days. And so had to get somebody who could do that. And then, um, then I met David Blight and we were talking and he said, you got them? And yeah. So he had the Yale money to get all of them translated. <laughs> so going through them, I mean, she clearly has a crush on Douglas. He clearly figures large in his life, her life. He's very important. But, um, you know, it's, he's more important in her life than she is in his. I mean, he does like her, but that doesn't mean he's having an affair with her. And, um, and everybody points to, well, she committed suicide when he got married. She committed suicide because she found out she had breast cancer. And by the time she found out breast cancer, it was so far along that it could be seen like on the outside, which is a death sentence. And so she committed suicide because it was either commit suicide or die a long, slow, painful death because they radical mastectomy at the time was a brand new operation. And, um, and it was still so far along, she probably wouldn't have survived it. So, um, and, uh, still haven't found her grave. So, and the, she her body her body was a Jane Doe basically at the Paris morgue and it was just right before it went to go to a medical school somebody who had been an old student of hers saw it because people would go to the Paris morgue just to view the dead bodies Be yeah because Victorians were ghouls so <laughs> it was it was a, one of the big tourist attractions was to go down to the morgue and look at the dead bodies that were on display we're going to we're going to talk in a minute about the the his two wives yep. but before we get there I just if you could talk a little bit about um since you know since we're talking about his relationship obviously with many different women and his entire life uh once he is free uh is is dedicated to abolition what role did were women able to play in the abolitionist movement despite the fact that obviously they weren't given the same cultural uh cachet and status as as the men like Douglas and Garrison and and Ruggles and so forth that, that, that could uh, speak out? Well, if there were no women, there would have been no abolition movement. The abolition movement was especially moral suasion, the idea of using your morality to to push change in the world was perfect for very moral women. For these moral upstanding women um they um first of all what you had was the abolitionist movement had peaks and valleys and the peaks and valleys you know usually after some big and we see the same thing today where um you have a big event so everybody rushes to that banner and then they fall away after some time and then a big event happens and and so the peaks and va valleys what you'll see is during the valleys, it will be the women who keep the organizations going and um, keep the networks going. And um, so that when the peaks come along, there's still some skeleton there on which to build. And um, so uh, when Douglas steps into this, so what he's stepping into are all of these women who have these organizations, who hold positions, and sometimes Sometimes this is one of the, the big divisions, one of the many divisions that happen amongst the abolitionists is should women hold positions within the body, the main body of the, like say the American Anti-Slavery Society, or should they have separate female ones? Women did either one. And sometimes women actually like to be in the separate female ones because they got more chances to do things like hold leadership roles and they had more influence. 
Um, and that also tracked with the Black church, where women had a lot of leadership roles in women's auxiliaries within the Black church. And women in the Black church, which then overlaps with the colored convention movement, women will have these kind of auxiliary supporting roles, but that gives them the influence of fundraising, of um, bringing speakers to, uh, to towns, of getting subscribers. And so he knew that he would have to court, um, wherever he went, he would have to court the female anti-slavery society and the women who were usually the corresponding secretaries, which was a pretty powerful role in that that was a person who had contact with, did all the correspondence of the organization. In um, the American Anti-Slavery Society, it was Maria Weston Chapman, who was a character, but um, she was a complicated person, but she um, she didn't get along with Douglas because she tried to control him and another, some of the black abolitionists had problems with her, but she um, she had the contact with England when he was traveling there. She would contact all of the other ones. She also ran the biggest anti-slavery fair in the country in Boston. They popularized the uh, Christmas tree too. Um, then, um, so Amy Post out in Rochester who kind of had a similar role out in Western New York. And then there was a group out in Cleveland who had that role out moving towards the, um, they called it the old Northwest, what was Northwest in those days. And so you had, um, and then you had the black women who had um, groups in New York and uh, Philadelphia. So you, these networks who were connected to each other, sometimes literally related to each other, so when Douglas came up, he wasn't just you know the one guy. He was plugged into these networks, and um, and they were the ones who helped get his newspaper subscribe, um, get subscriptions for his newspaper. They were the ones who got him speaking engagements, and having the Rochester Ladies Organization in Rochester helped him his newspaper survive and continue and um, became the hub for the Underground Railroad in Rochester and really supported what he was doing there at a point first when nobody else would. So that that was what how they supported him in the abolitionist movement. And it was a thing because certain theories, you didn't have to be able to vote, though it, that's why it overlapped with the women's rights movement. But you could use your influence and you could use the morality of opposing slavery could fit with the idea of true womanhood in which the woman was the moral guardian of the home and of the community. So those two things would work together and armor a woman to do anti-slavery work. And so doing work doing the fundraising and the preparations for the fairs actually could be done from the home. And that would, you know, they weren't thinking of it this way necessarily, but we could say they were politicizing the domestic sphere. That would be an academic way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, we have, um, we only have a little bit of time left. So I'm sure. going to try, try to, uh, I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to ask you a question that shouldn't be a short, short answer. Oh, gosh. But, uh, I'll, what I'll do is I'll turn it into a high school social studies question okay. of uh, comparing and contrasting uh, his two wives. Oh, gosh. Well, I always think that's so unfair because <laughs> um, because it, it, it can it can get racist. Um, but what they, um, you know, it, the Im implicitly racist. I mean, basically what you have, um, they would say at the time that uh, Anna was the wife of his youth and Helen was the wife of his old age. And an actress, Henrietta Vinton said, um, took that as an insult, that what a youth it was to be the wife of. But um, again, he lived a really long life and people do change. And I always say, you know, maybe Anna wouldn't have chosen him if she had a second chance, who would she have chosen, <laughs> you know? But, 
Yeah, when they married young, they married in the work. Anna married him out of the working class. She took a huge gamble because she was he was marrying up when he married her. She was free. She had money, but she, so she took a gamble. But they were in the working class when they got together, and they pretty much expected to be in the working class. But they were going to be free in the working class, and they were going to have a few better future for their children. She probably expected to always kind of be working and their children would go to school and then live a better life. But what happened was within like two years, he ends up on the path to becoming the Frederick Douglass that we know today. Neither of them bargained for that, you know, so she ends up married to somebody different and, um, but out of that, you know, she continues, she does get to rise. They rise into the middle class. And so she ends up being able to take care of her own home. She actually has her name on every extant deed they have of their house. Her name is on it. It's not his house. It's their house. Her mark is on there. So, yeah, she's, she is part owner of the house. She gets to stay home. Now we would not think of it this way, but she gets to stay home and take care of her own house, not somebody else's house, her own children, not somebody else's children. This is hers. And then she, um, she's, she has a husband who is able to provide this for them. And she takes care of that. And he is supporting their race. He's doing this important work. And then um, he's gone a lot of the time. So she's she's kind of the master in the house. She's like head in the house. He's head over the house. She's head in the house. Um, one of the most interesting statements was her daughter said, father was mother's honored guest, <laughs> which says a lot. <laughs> um, his second now, and so they live, you know, a 44 year marriage, which, um, you know, that's a long time through some really important changes. And um, he asked a lot of her, but she gave a lot. And, you know, she, she was by his side. So it was two very strong people in a long marriage. And when she died, we have the only record of him actually crying when he, um, aside from being a child, when his granddaughter comes to see him, she's just a little girl and he's sitting there crying saying, your grandmama is gone. And, um, and uh, he was really down. Now his second wife, uh, Helen, He's now a more mature man who's been through all of these experiences. And Helen was from Honeyoy, New York, which is just south of Rochester, tiny town, grew up in an abolitionist family, um, formed their own, her, the group formed their own church. They, they were come outers of their church and they formed their own abolitionist church. She, uh, she was, she went to Honeyoy, I mean, Mount Holyoke. Um, college with her sister. And then when the Civil War came, she joined up with the American Missionary Association and went out to Norfolk and taught school for free people. And when we're talking about school for free people in Norfolk, Norfolk was ground zero for um, the contraband. That is what started the um, movement to declare runaways free, which led to then the Emancipation Proclamation. And um, so she's teaching what it was like 300 people in the morning, 300 people in the app, another 300 people in the afternoon, and then another 300 on Sundays. Uh, at one point she ended up, uh, she goes into town and she sees a recruiting black men for soldiers. And so she starts teaching them to read. And then she, and, and it becomes this, this, this very complex organization where she's pulling some of the students who are who are learning quicker or who are already literate to be teachers as well. And she's writing saying we need black teachers down here so that our students understand this is not a white thing, that this is something they can have themselves. But like many teachers who went down there, this is 
really close quarters. Um, they're overtaxing what public, you know, sewage systems, et cetera. And so they're getting, she got very, very sick. Um, and it kind of destroyed her health for about five years. So she had to go back home. And when she recovered, she went to Washington, D.C. Her uncle lived next door to Frederick Douglass. Um, through her aunt, she got involved in a newspaper called The Alpha, um, and uh, which was uh, led, which was kind of a health reform, fem, um, women's rights, um, suffrage journal. I couldn't tell how long she was involved in it. It didn't look like very long because she ended up getting a job working for Frederick Douglass. Um, it's one of these patronage jobs. His daughters and his sons and all everybody worked for him. Um, and she worked in his office. She she knew Anna. She knew Rosetta. And when um, when Anna died, um, two years later, she and Frederick married. And they had shared interest in a way that probably Frederick and Anna had shared interest when they first got married. Their interests seemed to diverge. But um, they had like they they both liked to read Shakespeare, um, and. Uh, they had the Shakespeare Club, but with Anna, the important part about marriage with Anna was that it was it was a marriage at a time. It was a black family with a marriage, raising their children, educating their children, at a time when um, when all of the propaganda, all of the stereotypes said that they could not do that. That black people were unable to do that. After all, look at black families in slavery. And reading his narratives and his autobiographies, there is an implicit argument that slavery destroys. It, it doesn't even allow black families to form, that it's a, it's a systemic thing. And so with this family in the privacy in the middle-class status and education, this is a very important statement to be making to the world. I mean, they're doing it for themselves, of course, but it's also, something he's putting out in the world. And um, when he marries Helen, it's at a totally different time. And so at the time he marries Helen, one of the people who um, they meet is, is Ida B. Wells. And she's, he helps her promote her anti-lynching campaign. And the thing is, is at that time, one of the statements that their marriage says is that there can be interracial love. It's not illicit. It's not dirty. This is a marriage and being public with this marriage and showing their compatibility and so forth is important. And then he would even use that to challenge the notion of race by saying, why are people so upset that I married a woman a few shades lighter than myself? Would they be as upset if I married a woman a few shades darker? And, you know, because and he would refer to, you know, my mother was black, but my father was white. So, you know, which race am I supposed to marry if I'm supposed to stay within my race? So he uses to challenge um, that kind of racism in the very notion of race. And when they travel to Europe together, they're going through Europe and he would use that to say, um, write back and say, you know, here we are where there's monarchy and Catholicism. He, he didn't like, he, he considered a lot of religions, especially Catholicism is kind of backward. And he would um, say, here we are in these old, you know, ancient medieval monarchical places. And yet they still embrace us and treat us normally. They don't treat us poorly. Whereas we go to the bedrock, you know, the heart of democracy in the United States, we're treated poorly, we're shunned. And in fact, basically a mile in any direction from Washington, D.C., he would have been lynched. So, um, and then Helen is important because when he died, and they probably had this planned, she preserved his house, of which there was really no other kind of example of a house museum like that, except Mount Vernon. So, she preserved his house and his papers and his library and everything so that we can now go visit his house as a museum and use his papers that are now in the Library of Congress to study him. And 
there's really no similar collection like that of a Black abolitionist and um, no similar house of a Black abolitionist. And she was looking forward at that to um, understanding that this would be the important means of remembering the abolitionist movement at a time when um, the lost cause is gaining traction, the Dunning School is um, turning out students, um, that uh, even the abolitionist movement is being remembered as garrison and white-led. So she wanted this to be him, him and his work in the black portion of the abolitionist movement to be remembered. And so um, at the same time, she's running, she, and the ch his children are clashing. But what the children are also doing in their opposition to her is saying, we also need to remember Anna and the work she did. So things like Rosetta's memoir, and then in some private collections, they made, the sons made speeches, give us the material to remember Anna by and to study Anna. So <laughs> now I've run up against the end. Here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm still going to, I'm going to ask these questions anyway. Okay. Um, if, if you were um, to give some, give some advice to uh, secondary school teachers who want to use primary sources um, other than his, bio his autobiographies and the three of them, mm -hmm. uh, what jumps out at you and either something that you used yourself or just something that you think would be very helpful to understand, uh, in particular, the role of women in this movement and, and in and around the movement? Let's see. I would say, um, see, that's difficult because a lot of the stuff I had to get, I had to pull from other places. One thing I think is important is use his autobiography and then put it up against, say, Sojourner Truths, um, depend um, Harriet Jacobs, um, maybe a biography of Harriet Tubman, because then you can you can look at the different paths they each took. Um, because those those become ways of um, understanding why it might be more difficult for women to follow the same path he did, and then also to. Um, focus on the different women within his autobiographies and ask what became of them or even have them read Anna's, the memoir of Anna and ask them to compare Anna's life to his life and why she didn't become, you know, an outspoken person like he did. So you know, there, there's ways to even just use what he wrote to tease those things out. I'm trying to think of, yeah, because if you can compare, why isn't there a female Frederick Douglass? You know, or who is the female Frederick Douglass um, and how they are similar and different? That sometimes helps um, get at the questions of what women are doing. And then... Um, yeah, that's that's what I can think off the top of my head. All right. So the last question would be, uh, tell me about uh, the work that you're doing with Sally Hemings. And, uh, you know, what what inspired you to pick another topic that has been written about a oh, lot God. to find to find something, a new a new take on it? Well, actually, this was not my topic. <laughs> um, I was I'm doing actually I was thinking of doing something involving Little House on the Prairie, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> um this historian, Carol Birkin, who edits a series called Lives of American Women, and they put out very short biographies of American women that are meant for classroom use. And um, and she needed somebody to write about Sally Hemings because the previous writer had, um, had had said, I can't do this. And um, <laughs> I'm understanding why. <laughs> and I'd always had an interest in Sally Hemings. Um, when Annette Gordon-Reed's book came out, I was like, I got it immediately. Um, and uh, I actually, when she offered the contract to me, I was like, let me think about it. Well, my mom had always been, a, had lots of interest in Sally Hemings. She was a fan from way back. <laughs> so, um, so I just, I thought I'd just tell my mom. And so I did. And my mom says, do it. And so I, I said, okay. 
how hard can this be? <laughs> and so what it is, is um, what I'm doing is, again, it's, it's, I'm trying to make it synthesis of what, because really what Annette Gordon-Reed said is, I mean, what I'm finding is there is even less about Sally Hemings than there is about really any of the Black women I wrote about in Frederick Douglass's life. At some point, it's it doesn't matter how thick you make your context. If you're trying to build it on an edifice of evidence, if you don't have enough evidence, everything's collapsing. And so then that becomes a story. It's um, here's what this historian says, and here's what this historian says, and here's what this historian says, and here's the evidence. And here's some other ideas to go with it. What do you think? You know, it's, it's kind of, so I try to think of what, what teachers can do with it. Um, because the very semester before I was offered the contract, I had been talking um, about Sally Hemings with my students and they were so fascinated by her. And they said, what, what book is there to read? And I said, Oh, this great book, Hemings of Monticello, which is in fact about the whole family, who are all very interesting. And they said, oh, really? And I showed it to them and they said, 600 pages. <laughs> I'll just go look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> I was like, somebody needs to write a short book. And I guess I'm doing it. And <laughs> I hope I'm adding some stuff to it. But it's also a means of talking about things like race, slavery, women, and freedom during her lifetime, which was, I mean, she was born in 73 and died in 35 and 1835, 1773 to 1835. So it's a fairly crucial time period. And her grandmother was probably African. So really, we're talking about a period of say 1735 to 1835 and that's a pretty important interesting period of american history well i am looking forward to reading it i know how much you were able to add to the story of frederick Douglass in uh in the book that we're, we've discussed today so i i have every confidence that you'll be able to do it <laughs> so thank you so much for your time i greatly appreciate your generosity oh uh, thank you <laughs>